Hey, this morning we're going to be in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 15, finishing out this 15th chapter. And so if you have your copy of God's Word, you can turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 50 through 58. That's where we're going to be. If you don't have a Bible, don't have an app on your phone, you can find one in the coffee, uh, you can find a copy of it in the back of the pew in front of you. Man, we'd love for you to take that home. If you're not familiar with how to use that, there's a table of contents at the front of it. It's going to let you know where the various books are located. The large numbers are going to be chapters, and the small numbers are verses. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 50 through 58. Let me read this for us, and then we will, uh, we will walk through. Paul writes and says, I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall all be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. So, 1 Corinthians 15 is the longest chapter in all the book of 1 Corinthians, and Paul has been going through and systematically making this argument on the centrality of the resurrection for Christian's life. In essence, saying, listen, this is the most important thing that you need to be aware of, and if you miss this, if you get this wrong, here are all these things that are going to fall out that aren't going to work on the basis of your disbelief in the resurrection. So you'll remember that he, he talked to them about its historical reality. It really happened. There were people still alive at the writing of this that they could have spoken with and said, uh, tell me so-and-so, what was it like? And they would say, this is what it was like. This is how we saw him. This is how we engaged him. And this is what it was like in the days following. And then he moves through, and he has, in a very real sense, kind of this philosophical thing. It says, if this isn't real, then this isn't going to work. If this isn't real, then that's not going to work. And so little things like, like your faith and your eternal state, these aren't going to function, these aren't going to be set free if, in fact, Christ has not been raised from the dead. Now, what's immediately prior to this section was, was a question that stemmed from those there in Corinth really hating or distrusting or disliking or having at issue what it was to have a physical body in the new heavens and the new earth. They looked at their physical bodies and they said, I, I, I just don't like this. I find it to be incompatible with an understanding of a God who would resurrect the dead because our bodies, they would say, are evil. They're vile. And, and, and we don't like them and God can't use them. And so they were asking the questions, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body are they going to have? And then Paul fundamentally goes in and he's like, you misunderstand the right questions. You misunderstand the whole point of this and you downplay and in, in understanding the powerfulness of who God is and what this God is able to accomplish, what this God is able to do. So Paul is driving now towards his end. 
But listen to how he starts in verse 50, and this is decidedly telling, okay? He says, I tell you this, brothers. Now, Paul has had no small debate amongst these folks. Paul has had no small debate. There's been significant disagreement. There's, he's, he's found how this view itself could lead to devastating consequence. But even in the midst of his disagreement with them, he addresses them as brothers in Christ. And man, this, this opens up the door for us to be able to have significantly difficult conversations with people and to be able to do so in a loving and charitable way. He says, I tell you this, brothers. And in some sense, what he does next is he almost concedes the point of their argument. I, I mean, just kind of thinking about it, I, could, I can kind of put myself in the room as they hear these words and they're like, we knew it. We knew Paul was wrong because he writes and he says, listen, you're right. Flesh and blood can inherit the kingdom of God. And they're like high-fiving around the room. We knew it. This is trash. This is awful. They were almost right. Listen, flesh and blood can't inherit the kingdom of God, nor, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. And they're to look at their trick knees, their bum feet, and their ailing, ailing joints and say, oy vey, of course it can't. Go the distance in this old thing? Never. So he calls them, he, he, he's, he's got their attention, he's got them wrapped right there, and then he says, behold. And when Paul says, behold, he invites them to come in and, and to not just hear what I'm going to say, not just stand at a distance, but in a very real sense, he asks them, look, come up close, look closely at this, carefully consider what I'm about to tell you. Draw in near to this argument. Come so incredibly close to this that your view of it changes everything about you and everything for you. He says, behold, I tell you a mystery. I'm about to tell you something amazing. I'm about to give you something, Paul says, that has been revealed to me by God. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. Now, Paul's not saying, look, some of us, alive, some of us are going to be alive when he comes. He's just saying not everyone has to die. Death isn't necessary for transformation. Death isn't necessary for us to be changed. But the body that's in the grave and the body that's walking at the time of the return of Jesus, both of those will be changed like that. None will be any more difficult than the other. This testifies and points to the transformative power of our God and the limitless ability of him who will take the necrotic, dying, rotting flesh in the grave and will take us, those of us, some of us, in just kind of the height and robustness of all physical prowess, or so we think. And he's going to take both of those because neither one of them is compatible in the new heavens and the new earth. And he's going to change. He's going to transform both of them. And so they begin to think, hold on a second. You said flesh and blood can't inherit. And we get that. And he says, listen, everything's going to be changed. Everything's going to be different. And this is how it's going to happen, verse 52, in a moment. You know, when Paul uses the word moment here, what he's describing is the smallest unit of time imaginable. So imagine if we were to go to this room and are to throw out and say, uh, say, Kelly, what would you say the smallest unit of time is? And Kelly says, uh, says I don't know, how long are you planning to preach for? Is this a trick question? I say, no, it's not a trick question. I, I, I resent that. Uh, what's the smallest unit of time? And he says, I don't know, about a minute. Somebody else says, ha, I could say a second. Somebody else, real smart Alec, and they say, no, it's a nanosecond. And then somebody uh, beyond that just begins to parse and parse and parse and parse and parse and parse and parse, down and down and down. What he means to communicate in this is the smallest amount of time possibly imaginable. This is how fast 
This is how quick this is going to translate. But we recognize that's, that's something that outside of our experience, that's something we can't really put flesh on, we can't really understand. So he comes back again and he gives them a more concrete example. He says, in the twinkling of an eye. So in length of time, it takes you to dart your glance from one side of the room to another, which in this room happens numerous times throughout the course of the sermon because people are up and walking around in the rooms designed in such a way that you can see them. And I can see all. <laughs> he says it's going to be in the twinkling of an eye. And listen to what he says here. He says, at the last trumpet. At the last trumpet. You know, Paul has written to the church in, Thessal in Thessalonica. He's written to the Thessalonians in 1 Thessalonians 4 verses 13 through 18, he describes what this is going to be like. And he's writing to them there in Thessalonica because they are, they're sad, they're sorrowful, because some of their members, some of their body have died. And so he writes simply to say, look, I don't want you to, to grieve as those who don't have hope, but I want you to understand that the Christian is able to engage in a hope-filled grief. It's not that we're not sad when, when our brothers, when our sisters, when our family members, when our, when our parents, when our cousins, when our neighbors die. We are overcome with sadness in that moment. But our lives aren't typified as being caught up in perpetual grief because we as Christians are able to have hope in Jesus who was raised from the dead and Jesus who will raise us likewise. And this, he has this idea that, that there's coming a day, there's coming a moment when Christ will return. Christians live with a hopeful expectation of a Jesus who's coming back, or we should. Many of us, the way we go about being hopeful is simply saying, he died and he rose again and my sins are taken care of. But recognize this, if he leaves us here in our perishable mortal state, then there's no cause for extended rejoicing. But we have rejoicing because Jesus didn't leave, didn't depart to say, see you later, best of luck, good on you, and, 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 and all that. He left us and he is coming back again. Before he left the disciples in John chapter 14, he says, I will come again and take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. Now listen, in John 14, Jesus isn't talking about a place, he's talking about residing with him for all eternity. And even in here, in what Paul's describing, he's not talking about and solving theological disagreements and wranglings for us. The most important thing in this is that Jesus is coming again. And he's gonna do so in an instant, and he's gonna do so visibly, and he's gonna do so bodily. Jesus is coming, coming again. So he says, the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised and perishable and we shall all be changed. So just imagine this reality. Imagine how incredibly transforming and transfixing this will be that all across the world, all in an instant, everyone who has died in Christ is going to be raised. And everyone who lives in Christ will be fundamentally, phenomenally transformed all in an instant. It'd be like if Jim and I were walking down the road and all of a sudden, boom, we have this new, transformed, resurrected body. We hear the trump sound and we see in the heavens Christ descending. And both of us together at the same time will say, hallelujah, our king has come. This is what's going to happen. This is how these things are going to unfold. This is the reality in the future for the church. This is the future for all of humanity. A coming king. Not one who sits, who sits passively upon his throne, but one who even today rules and reigns. Amen? Trump's going to sound, the devil be raised imperishable, and we shall all be changed. 
So he comes back to the idea of the physical body, this perishable body, and he just looks at it, and Paul uses this metaphor of of clothing, of clothing. Now, elsewhere, the Bible speaks of those who are followers of Jesus as having been clothed in his righteousness. Now, that's conveying this idea that when God looks at you, he looks at Bob, he looks at Kai, he looks at Philip, he looks at those of us who name the name of Jesus. When he looks at us, when God the Father looks at us, he sees the riches of Christ's righteousness lavished upon us. Now, when you imagine that, as you sit here and as you think about your week and as you reflect upon the things you've done, either, either just kind of sins you've acted out or sins you've thought out, typically when we think about our Father seeing us, it engenders shame, right? Because we, we reflect back upon those times when we are living in the flesh. We are living not in accordance with the new heart he's given us, not with the righteousness that he's robed us, but living according to the flesh. And we think that's how God sees us. Beloved, when, when God the Father looks down and sees you, he sees you through Christ. Christ is advocating on your behalf so that when the Father looks down and he sets his gaze upon you, Jesus says, don't look at their sinfulness, look at my atoning death. Don't look at who they have been acting as, look at me. You have been clothed in righteousness, but a greater day awaits. A greater day than simply being clothed in righteousness. He will take our perishable bodies and he will dress us, outfit us in imperishableness. He will take our mortal, failing, death-awaiting bodies and he will strip away every encumbrance and he will clothe us in immortality. Death will be arrested. Death will be ended finally and fully for us. And then he says, when the perishable puts on the imperishable, when the mortal puts on immortality, so in this day, in the twinkling of an eye, in this day, when the trump sounds, in this day, when Christ returns, then will come to, come to pass the saying that is written. And what Paul does here is truly masterful. Paul takes Isaiah 25, 8 and Hosea 13, 14, and he melds them together and he gives them to us as this terrific hymn of victory. But in Isaiah 25, starting in verse 6, we begin to see what God was at work at. I want to read Isaiah 25, 6 through 8. You can turn or jot this down. Isaiah writing, points at the mountain. He says, on this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples. On this day, the Lord will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food, full of marrow, aged wine, well-refined. Isaiah depicts this day when God is going to set a lavish feast for all those named in Jesus. He's going to spare no expense, and he's going to roll out the finest things that Isaiah could imagine. Rich food, well-aged wine. And in that day, this is what he's going to do. He's going to swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. Anywhere you're ever to go in the world, any time in history you're ever able to go there, the one thing that reigns is death. The one thing that rules, that ties nations together, that helps us to find commonality in the struggle is death. And this is what he's going to do. In that moment when he has set that feast, he will swallow up death forever and the lord god will wipe away tears from all faces and the reproach of the people he will take away from all the earth 
he began to accomplish this in Christ's resurrection. Jesus Christ has fulfilled this promise. And we're still waiting on the effect on its realization upon our lives. The final fatal sting of death has been removed. It has been taken away. And we're still waiting to see death finally and fully defeated. He says, death is swallowed up in victory. And then he taunts death in verse 55. Oh, death, where is your victory? To which death would have to reply, I'm defeated and I'm scrambling and I'm doing the best I can to inflict maximum casualty until the day when Christ returns. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? So the question becomes, how has he affected this? How How has he done this? Well, Romans 6, 9 tells us, we know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. And death no longer has dominion over him. When Christ was raised from the dead, he was raised never to die again. And he points, Christ, the first fruits of our resurrection, points at our future. Christ raised imperishable. Christ raised in immortality points to our future, your future, and to my future, and the hope and promise of all the good news and the gospel we share with everybody we encounter. There is a deathless future awaiting us. There's an imperishable future awaiting us. Now, all of us have experienced the tinge, the pain, and the sadness of death. We know what it is to lose family members. We know what it is to lose children. But we await a promise of an eternity spent only in life. No more sadness, no more tears, only joy and gladness await us in the future. So Paul points in verse 56, he wants to talk about this sting, this penalty, this punishment, this inflicting agent of pain. He says, the sting of death is sin. The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. Let's take some time to, to unpack this quickly, what it, what it is that the, the sting, or the power rather, of sin is the law, and how these things work together. Flip over to Romans, if you will. Flip over to the book of Romans, it's a little to the left. Paul gives us an interesting statement on the law in Romans 7 and verse 7. He says, what shall we say then? That the law is sin? By no means. He's saying, listen, you need to understand something. The law itself is not sinful, but this is the role the law plays. If it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said you shall not covet. The law gives us an opportunity to come into contact with God's perfect character and to reveal as paul says what it is and to recognize that covetousness is bad and it is sinful the bible further goes on and and begins to communicate to us what sin is and 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 how this is worked out and the bible tells us in romans 3 and verse 23 that all have sinned Celeste, you're sitting in the back of the room or in the balcony and thinking well this sin thing sounds like a pretty big deal i'm so glad that i'm perfect This sin thing sounds like a pretty devastating thing. I'm so glad that I've not been infected with it. Well, Paul has already sadly told us and informed us that we have all sinned in Adam. 
We've been born, Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, in the image of the man of dust. We've been born in Adam. And like Adam, we have given ourselves to sin. For all have sinned. And then he goes on and says in verse 6 and 23 of the book of Romans that the wages of this sin, our just penalty, our payment, as if at the end of our lives God says, here you go, this is what you get for sinning. The wages of that is death. Death. Certainly physical death. But death outside of the forgiveness of Jesus, it is death. It is an eternity separated from the effective, life-changing love of God found in the sacrifice of Jesus. The sting of sin is death, and the power of sin is the law. Now I tell you, if Paul were to leave us there, if he were to leave us lying in our misery, if he were to leave us lying in our despair, if he were to leave us fearing death, if he were to leave us fearing the law, then he would be a jerk. And certainly there's a better word, but, but, but my vocabulary fails at this very moment. Certainly be discourteous. Certainly be unloving. But look at what he does. In this moment when death appeared to have won, in this moment when death appears to reign unabated, without ability to be restrained or limited, he says, thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Thanks be to God. That even though the law is pointing out sin in us and pointing out our failures in us, we recognize that Paul goes on to write in Romans 10 and 4 that Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. That Christ finally and fully satisfies the law. He leaves us not to a life spent in toil and seeking to be good and seeking to be better and seeking to fulfill the law, but Christ recognized that we are, we are decidedly incapable. He saw all of our Mondays. He saw all of our Tuesdays. He saw all of our good days, and he was tempted, but then he saw our bad days, and he said, they really are awful, and so Christ died for us. He is the end of the law. He is the perfection of the law. So that we might be righteous. More graphically, he describes it in Galatians 3 and verse 13. Speaking of Jesus, he says, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Christ took upon himself our sin. He took upon himself your penalty and mine. All my feigned goodness, any hypocrisy born in my heart, any pride born in my heart, any wayward word that uh, escapes from my mouth, any uncharitable thought, any errant thing in any of us for all times, Christ took upon himself and he bore that on the tree. And he did so gladly. He did so willingly. He became the curse so that we wouldn't have to be burdened. And it's on the basis of this good news then that he calls us to do something. So this is the fantastic thing about all of chapter 15. You read chapter 15 and you skip verse 58 and you are wonderfully informed. But all this time you think, you just go around and like, what did you learn in church today? And you could say, I am wonderfully informed or I would be if I'd stayed awake. But let's just say there are people there who are wonderfully informed. But when we get to verse 58, it's that Paul said, listen, all of this stuff I've said, all of these things I've communicated to you so that you would be something different. So he says, therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, 
and immovable. Now check it out. This is the amazing thing that he's done in the midst of this. He gave us a nod towards this back in the beginning. Back in the beginning, before he ever began to talk to them about their errant beliefs, about how they were wrong, back in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 15, he says, I'm, I'm reminding you of the gospel which I've preached to you, in which you, which you have received, in which you stand. Their ability to stand, friends, is only ever in the good news of the gospel. That God has sent his son Jesus to die for you, to atone for your sins, that his grace and mercy equips you and helps you to stand even today. This is what we stand in. The good news of the gospel as, as lived out in Jesus, as received by us and as communicated by Paul. We stand in the good news of the gospel by which we are being saved. On the basis of being those then who have received the gospel, on the basis of being those who, who don't have to be the curse but have received forgiveness of sins by Jesus who himself became the curse. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast and immovable. Stand. Be ready. Now, Paul is unfair if he begins there and says, be steadfast and immovable. It's your responsibility. But instead, he says, look at all the amazing things that God has done for you, how he's changed your past, how he's, how he's laid your burden and your sin on Jesus, and how he has secured your future. And on the basis of these things, then stand steadfast. Paul enters into this engagement of redundancy, of saying be steadfast and immovable, letting us know that we are to be impervious, letting us know that we are to be incapable of attack. Why? Because we stand in the steadfastness of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Not some good thing we've done, but the great thing that he's done for us. Amen? On the basis of this, be steadfast, be immovable. And this is what we do. He says, always abounding in the work of the Lord. Now, when we say this, our mind jumps to concrete things. And if, so if I were to come to you and, and, and say, Jason, what does it mean to be uh, uh, abounding in good works? And this is our, from our posture of being steadfast and immovable. Well, he's just nuts about missions. And so he says, oh, I need to go live on mission for the Lord. Oh, I need to go do this. Oh, I need to go do that. Oh, I need to give all my money away to the poor. Oh, I need to go teach a Sunday school class. Oh, I need to do this. Oh, I need to do that. So he begins to describe things that flow from his personality. And he begins to, whether or not he says it or not, he begins to create carefully constructed structures whereby he would really solidly appreciate it if God would just kind of stay over there and operate within the church sphere. And say, Lord, would you just kind of operate in this sphere? And I'm really just not all that uh, concerned that you do these things. And, 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 I'm, and, and, and then within the sphere of the church, I'm ready to abound in the work of the Lord. As if there's this bifurcated understanding, there's this split understanding. I have the work of the Lord and I have the work of Matt. You have uh, the work you do at the firehouse, you have the work you do in your place of business, you have your work you do in your home, and, and then, well, you know, occasionally, a couple Sundays out of the month, uh, you come together here for work. It's just, just quite simply not what he's communicating. He gives us this understanding of what it is to always abound in the work of the Lord, that there is no portion of our lives that is off limits to him. There is no margin in your life. There is no structure in your life. There is no carefully constructed and safeguarded corner of your life where it's just kind of God-free zone. But he gives us a picture instead of, of everything in our lives belongs to him 
And over the course of our lives, we're continually divesting ourselves of ownership, right? We're, we're recognizing, I never really owned this anyway. And so as he alerts me to the reality that I never really owned this anyway, that my life and my time was never really mine anyway, that my money was never really mine anyway, that all of my talent was never really mine anyway, that all of my free time was never really mine anyway, that as he's alerting me and driving me to the understanding and the reality of this, this is how I always abound. It's living life in full submission to him. So he comes to you and he finds you in your indifference. And he alerts you to it. And he says, here's this thing that I've been doing and here's this person I've been investing in and I want you to go share with them. And I want you to go talk to them. This is an opportunity to be always abounding in the work of the Lord. And he has it for all of us. You want to always abound? You got to be ready to submit. If you want to be a marginal, average Christian, recognize this, that category does not exist within Scripture. The only category, the only picture of a Christian given who's fully sold out for Jesus is the one who's always abounding. And from this place of being commanded to go out and to always abound, he says, this is how you do it, because you know that your work is never in vain. Now, here's the difficulty. Most of the things we do in life, we feel like we're doing them in vain. When you clean your house, if you, if you have kids at home, my wife refers to it as brushing your teeth while chewing Oreos, right? It just feels like, like I just keep brushing, but what is the deal with this stuff? And I'm like, I don't know, hand me another Oreo. I've got to keep Jeff in business, give me more Oreos. Man, when we set our purpose to work in the idea here in the last of labor is excruciating burden. We'll find this word translated over and over and over again as taking a beating. This is the picture he gives of us, that our toil, that our extreme labor, that we would wear ourselves out working for him, knowing that in our parenting it's not in vain. The moments when you're constantly directing your child back to the Lord, these things are not in vain. You honor your father when you do this. Even in their waywardness and even in their disbelief, you're honoring the Lord in your job, in the thankless things you do. You're like, man, all I do is turn a cog. All I do is punch a clock. All I do is show up and go home. Nobody's impacted, but you can translate. You, all these things can be transformed just as you will be resurrected. Live out a resurrected purpose in the midst of your work. Live out your job with renewed purpose, knowing your labor is not in vain. God has placed you in this job to be impactful to the people around you. And in our witnessing, how many of us, when we go to share the gospel, we walk away and we think, I nailed that. We got like two people in the back and none of us like them. And, and so many of us, when we share the gospel, we feel like hacks and failures. Right? I was going to share the gospel, but they, they looked really intimidating and like they didn't, you know, uh, they didn't, uh, you know, uh, and so I didn't. Man, in our failed attempts, we can still honor the Lord. Our labor is not in vain. Our witnessing, no matter how many times we're rejected, is not in vain. And let me share this with you. Your suffering, your suffering is not in vain. 
your suffering is a terrific encouragement to those around you. They hear your suffering. They see the tears on your face. They know the story of your life and how it points to the goodness of God. Even these things are never in vain. The Lord uses all. If we'll be a people who focus on his goodness and keep our hands to the task he has before us, our labor for his glory will never be in vain. Amen? Amen. Hey, let me pray for us as we transition to take the supper together. Father, we thank you that you've given us an opportunity to take the supper together here. And I pray for our deacons that as they're coming forward to serve your body. That these men uh, would do well serving in their homes and serving in their community. God, I pray for us in this church that some of us are just burdened with frustration and we're irritated by the people around us. Even as Dee was praying, we recognize that that we're not yet ready to, to relinquish that burden. So God, would you be with that brother or sister? Would you cause them to lay that burden down at the foot of your cross? Would you cause them, even in this time, if they don't take the supper, to be praying for those to whom their bitterness belongs? And we pray for those who have yet to submit themselves to you. God, that you would work in their hearts to produce healing, calling them to yourself, that they might find forgiveness and salvation in the cross of Jesus. We submit these things to you in his name. Amen.